Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. Well, on the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Dr. Charles von Lochrenberg, Regional Medical Director of International SOS South Africa, about the recent launch of their Health Map 2013. Dr. Israel Obel will be on the line and he's a specialist cardiologist at Milk Park Hospital. And I'll be chatting with him about atrial fibrillation and its association as a major risk of stroke. And then I'll be speaking with Eleanor Brook, founder of the Home of Hope, about the amazing work they're doing with children affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And apparently she'll be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to raise awareness of the subject. And finally, I'll be joined in studio by Kanyisa Belfour, Group Corporate Social Investment Manager for Engine, who'll be chatting with me about the Engine Driver Wellness Campaign. And just a reminder that if you need any information regarding Health Matters or any of the contact details you might have missed, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Health Matters on SAFM. There's also a link there on Facebook if you'd like to download a podcast of the show. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Look at the sunshine and the view. Yep, it's a really nice day to park and watch life go by, huh? And a great idea to open the sunroof. I didn't open the sunroof. Oh! Apparently that's good luck. Your car will find a way to punish you if you don't use Caltex Diesel 50 with the cleaning power of Tecron D. Because advanced engines need advanced Caltex Diesel 50. Available at selected Caltex service stations. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, International SOS recently announced the launch of its Health Map 2013, and it's a tool that helps organizations understand the medical risks in the markets where they operate and also identify how to preempt health threats to their employees. Well, joining me now is Dr. Charles van Lachrenberg, Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. Dr. van Lachrenberg, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. It's great to chat. Thanks for the conversation. Uh, rather an interesting document, the Health Map uh, 2013. I was going through some of the information on it, and I don't think people are quite aware of exactly what's in it. So maybe just explain to us how you, I mean, you, you have things like medium, medium, high, low, all the different risk factors involved, and it's literally for everywhere in the world. The whole planet is mapped out, absolutely. You know, I think this, uh, in, in simple terms, this tool has evolved over 25-odd years of experience in sort of maneuvering and providing medical assistance and evacuation support to travelers and, and, and citizens around the planet. And what we've certainly seen and developed, I, I think, a, a, a fairly high level of proficiency at doing is really recognizing that, and as an emergency specialist, one can kind of comment quite directly on it, that a huge number of emergency situations and uh, acute medical events are, quite frankly, avoidable. In other words, you know, you, the traveler, should be putting me out of work is really the simple strategy. <laughs> um, and one can do that with a, a large amount of common sense and a little bit of self-education. So I think where the, the health map becomes a really interesting tool is it's really doing that. It's, it's putting into the hands of the traveler information that says, righto, you've decided you're going on a business trip from Johannesburg to uh, Luanda, Angola, or you're going on a holiday trip to Thailand. 
um, this is a different country, it's a foreign place, it's strange. You could, you could Google it or you could read your travel magazine or you could actually take a, a healthcare view and say, what are the things about where I'm going that will actually impact on my health and my safety? And those two things are quite closely linked. In other words, if I'm going to Angola and we're in Angola, do I need to know about malaria? Do I need to know about public health safety? Do I need to know about washing my hands? Do I need to be reminded that I can't eat salad in a restaurant safely or is the most dangerous thing in this country really watching out for cars driving too fast? In other words, when you go to a particular part of the planet, it's around having a, a sense of what are in fact the risks that me as the individual traveler or me as the person who's going to work there on behalf of my organization, what are the things that I should be educated about? And I think that in a nutshell really describes what the map is doing. So it, um, if you imagine, if, if listeners are imagining a map of the globe that's been uh, color orientated with all the, the autumn colors of the season, you know, so we've got yellows and light oranges and dark oranges and reds, and it's, uh, it's fairly idiot-proof to figure out that the bulk of Africa, for example, is mostly red uh, from a health perspective. While you can travel Africa, and I certainly do all the time, uh, you need to be aware of a lot of the health risks, whereas if you're going to uh, countries like, uh, you know, the U.S. or parts of Western Europe or Australia, for example, the medical risks to you as the traveler are a lot lower. And I think that's really what the tool is, is looking to empower travelers to be able to take some charge of the, the early part of their, of their travel. I think also here for us South Africans, the risks have not been there for all that long in the fact that we haven't really had you know, the, the ability to travel internationally as, as free as we are now. And so more of us are going to more places now than we ever could before. And, you know, it... it People are working overseas, possibly in riskier destinations than they would have possibly done before. And I think it's a whole new world has opened up to us here. We just need to be aware of where we're going. The global village, you're 100% right. That global village is, is really not the, the cliche from, you know, your kids at high school. It's actually a reality. People are getting out there. They're working in, in places that, are, that they have to use a passport to get to. And uh, it really is, uh, you know, with the, the, the power of, of the electronic media and with the Internet and, and connectivity that we've got, you can really, at the touch of a few buttons and the correct choices in terms of your partner, your advisor, your, your medical assistance company, for that matter, um, you can be armed with information that can really make your business trip to Cairo um, a lot safer and a lot less risky, and therefore, both from a personal health perspective should you be packing your aspirin with your toothpaste or should you just be taking your chronic diabetic medication script with you in a translation that a local doctor could understand or should you just be making sure that your, um, your spouse and your family have your contact phone number? In other words, what's the level of response that you should be geared up for? Absolutely right. The other problem as well is if you go to some countries, you'd think, well, they're pretty developed, they're okay. But if you go out of the capital city, you're going to possibly have a problem. So that's not something you should overlook either. You know, the global, one of the leading trauma medicine courses that's taught around the world is a program called Advanced Trauma Life Support. And many doctors and nurses and paramedics around the world uh, are holders of a certificate in this particular course. And this course actually was developed in the medically civilized country of the United States of America uh, by an orthopedic surgeon who had exactly that experience you're describing where he had family members who either died or had a very poor medical outcome in remote rural 
United States of America. In other words, mm. not New York, not San Francisco, but out in the, in the boondocks, in the sticks. And uh, that experience has actually been kind of pulled into recognizing that we need to understand that, you know, countries don't represent uniform medical experiences. Um, I mean, we see that in South Africa alone, you know, with, if you're a Johannesburg, Cape Town, Durban, Bloemfontein, I better keep going before some doctors get upset. Marcel Bay, George, uh, De R, those are all fabulous. Um, but, you know, if you get into a place that's a little bit more difficult to pronounce, then certainly your, uh, you know, your orthopedic surgeon is not going to be immediately available. So I think the same logic applies to a lot of countries, quite right. How important is it to be, have a really good medical screening before we go? Because I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that. I'm just going on holiday, but surely they should have a general medical checkup before they travel anywhere. You know, the, the temptation is to say screen before travel in the same way as you would service your motor car before you go on a long mm. trip. I suppose that's a comparable analogy. However, if your motor car is a Rolls Royce, then you don't need to service it every time you drive down to the Vol Dam. Same applies to you. You know, if you're looking after yourself as though you're a Rolls Royce or maybe, you know, you sound a bit more like a Ferrari than a Rolls Royce. Oh, I like you. So we go with that. <laughs> so if you're looking after yourself as though you're a Ferrari, then you really, I think the answer I'm trying to give is that you need to be in tune with the requirements of you at your particular age and your particular medical conditions. So if you are, you know, young, fit, gym bunny, young corporate executive, you're healthy and you've not got any chronic medical diseases, well, then, you know, a full medical checkup before you go on a short business trip, probably not appropriate, but maybe a phone call to your medical assistance provider to say, what do I need to know about not catching gastro when I travel or malaria cover versus I'm the 55-year-old executive who's not in great shape. I'm, uh, you know, I've been taking antihypertensives for 10 years. My cholesterol's a bit high. I'm going to be doing four business trips over three months. I need a full medical before I go. So it's really a, 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 a graded uh, response. And you can imagine that there's an amount of common sense in there, but it's about having a very good and honest relationship with both your personal health care provider and your assistance provider. The one thing you mentioned earlier, which is something I'd actually never thought of, is if you need a prescription for something and you're taking your medication, is to take a prescription in, translated into a language that a local doctor, wherever it is you're going, would understand. I'd never thought of that before. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it sounds yeah. like a character out of a Mr. Bean or Faulty Towers, I think, is the character. <laughs> yes, you know? it is, Manuel. I, I learned yeah. it from a book. Yeah. Um, but um, absolutely right. And, you know, that little pearl, if you like, which is a, actually quite a well-taught pearl in travel medicine terms, is one of a hundred that, that you as the infrequent traveler don't have immediate access to, which is why you want to tap into a, a pool of expertise. You want to consult with travel and medical travel advisors to be able to just be briefed on things like that, you know, what to carry with you, what sort of, uh, you know, um, you, you're going to East London, you don't need medication other than a, a paracetamol for a headache, but if you're going to an obscure part of, uh, of Vietnam, it might be sensible to carry two antibiotics for gastrointestinal uh, tract infections, for example. Now, those are exactly the type of things that could make your, your travel so much more manageable. If we, if we look at the stats of saying that if, uh, if, if 100,000 travelers go to a developed country, a developing country, sorry, developing country within a month, uh, half of them are going to experience a healthcare problem. Half. You know, wow. that's, mm -hmm. you and me go to uh, Mozambique, 
and we stay there for a month, one of us is going to have a health problem. It's a done deal. Well, you, you, let, let's say you go, I'll stay home. Fair just... enough. <laughs> Love your work, and uh, I'll just pack the aspirin with my toothbrush. Yeah, I'll just um, stay here. It's fine. But it, it, as you say, a lot of it is just common sense and thinking about things. And really, it's almost like being a Boy Scout, you know, be prepared. It, I, I couldn't say it better. You know, it's to be prepared in the sense that um, we, uh, as the emergency medical and, and, and medical assistance fraternity of the world, will be more than happy to come fetch you. We'll mobilize the, the Rolls-Royce air ambulance jets and send the best doctors, nurses, paramedics to come fetch you from the darkest parts of the planet. But, you know, quite frankly, we'd rather not. Um, it would be much more sensible if you didn't go through that problem and you could look after yourself sensibly and reduce that risk because then the very meager resources that exist around the world can in fact be deployed for when you really, really do need it. Now, there is a, a link to a website, but it's a very long, complicated one, so I'm going to post it on my website, uh, on, on the uh, Facebook page, and also if people want it, they can email me for it. But on that website, is there practical information or is it just the general health map that's on there? Uh, a little bit of both. So I think you'll find the world of, of international SOS medical assistance is very much kind of, uh, you know, um, for, for organizations and members that have access to kind of the deep layers of information, there's a whole range of material. I think if you just scratch the surface, certainly you can get a, uh, an overview. Um, so there's a fair amount of, of good information there to assist one as the traveler and, uh, and certainly some, some pointers in the right direction. But I think listeners should certainly, you know, have a look at that link and go and have a peek at the map just to give them a sense of if you're a relatively inexperienced or infrequent traveler, just a sense of, uh, of maybe a different way of looking at the world. Well, Charles, thank you so much for enlightening us on, on, on how to travel sensibly. And I will, as I said, post that link because to give it out now, people are going to be very confused. It's quite a long link. So just click on it when you find it on the Facebook page or you can email me for it. But Charles van Lochenberg, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to chat. Good Cheers. night. Dr. Charles van Lochenberg is the Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. Now, if you'd like to take a look at the Health Map 2013, and it's very interesting, drop me an email to law, oh, sorry, not law, it's Health Map at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM and I'll post the link there. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, in the course of an average lifetime, the human heart beats more than 2 billion times. And even though there may come a point in all our lives when we feel a skip of a beat or perhaps the unprovoked stir of a rapid pulse, there are also those who develop an ongoing pattern of quick, disorganized heartbeats. To talk to us more about this, I'm joined this evening by Dr. Israel Obel, a specialist cardiologist at Milk Park Hospital. Dr. Obel, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, I mentioned in the beginning we were going to talk about atrial fibrillation. What exactly is atrial fibrillation? I think, as, as I mentioned, we all have that odd moment when we, our heart sort of jumps or skips a beat. But what is atrial fibrillation? It's obviously a lot more serious than just that. Well, as you uh, and all your listeners know, the heart is made up of four chambers. The two small chambers on the top, which are the atria, and the ventricles, which are below, and they are the pumping chambers. Now, the atrial chambers are the ones who feed the ventricles with blood returning from the, from the rest of the body or the lungs. The rhythm of the heart is controlled from the atria, naturally, because they prime the whole pumping system. When that rhythm is permanently disturbed, and it is no longer irregular, but it is totally irregular, going at up to 350, 400 beats per minute, you know, the normal heartbeat is around 70. 
That is a condition which is called atrial fibrillation. Fortunately, of course, it doesn't usually, very, very rarely, does it uh, force the bottom part of the heart to beat quite that fast. But it can uh, have very, very serious effects. Now, the reason that atrial fibrillation is so important is that it's so common. And it's thought that something like one quarter of every person over the age of 55 or 60 will at some or other time develop atrial fibrillation. And it's something that occurs increasingly frequent, frequently with age. We, we would obviously know that we had this condition because our heart would be... No, you wouldn't. Oh. No. But if it's beating so rapidly, would we not notice that? Well, the problem really is that um, that's not necessarily the case. Oh. Um, people are not always aware of how their, heart beats, uh, how their heart is beating, at what rate their heart is beating. In fact, many people that I've seen who've had atrial fibrillation for years and are suffering one of the side effects of or the complications of atrial fibrillation, many of those people are totally unaware of uh, the fact that their heart is beating abnormally and abnormally rapidly, abnormally rapidly all the time, and are suffering from the consequences of that. And they can be profound. What are some of the risks and long-term complications of this? Well, the first thing is that the heart is not is being driven in an unphysiological way. The first thing is that, as you as you know, that when you sleep, your heart goes more slowly, and when you run, it goes more quickly. That's because the heart is receiving information from the rest of the body and and responding appropriately. When atrial fibrillation is present, that ability is no longer there and the atrial fibrillation drives the heart at an abnormal rate. It can be, of course, affected by activity, no doubt, but it's not a normal physiological uh, approach. So that is the first thing. The second thing is there, there is a danger of the two major complications. The first complication is stroke. And undiagnosed or atrial fibrillation is a is the commonest cause of what we call ischemic stroke. That means a stroke not due to a hemorrhage, but just due to a blood clot. It is the commonest cause of that. And the second, of course, is that the heart, being driven at an abnormal rate, eventually sort of runs out of gas, and the heart muscle begins to fail. Those are the two major complications. Other complications, of course, are a major interference with quality of life and uh, the ability to live a normal life. So what, is, what are we supposed to do now if we don't most of the time know that we have this problem? Should we be taking our pulse on the regular basis? When should we go to the doctor? What should we be doing about this now? Well, there's been a very good initiative taken up, uh, started in England, and uh, it's now being introduced into South Africa. It's not run by doctors, it's run by uh, people who are associated with the profession, and it's aimed really at being a public um, awareness kind of um, drive. And what happens there, what they have suggested, and it's worked very well in England, is that people learn to take their own pulse. That's really 
a very, very simple thing to do, and there will be uh, a major campaign going on where people are being taught to take their own pulse. And that's particularly good because once you're used to taking your own pulse and you do it on a regular basis, you may be able to detect intermittent abnormalities in your heart rhythm, which might not be found on, for example, a regular visit to the doctor. Which, uh, because at that particular time your pulse may be normal. However, intermittent abnormalities of the heart rhythm can certainly lead to permanent ones, and intermittent ones are almost as dangerous as permanent ones. So if you learn to take your own pulse, and please be aware that there will be a, a national campaign in which this awareness will be taught, and centers will be open where you can learn to teach, learn to take your own pulse. If you can take it, you can monitor yourself. You can then take this information to your doctor. And doctors, regrettably, many of whom are unaware of the importance of atrial fibrillation, because it's so common, we've grown to sort of accept it. It's only recently that we've understand what devastation it can wreak. Uh, cause, the doctors, too, are going to be uplifted in their treatment uh, reactions. And I believe that there's a very good chance that very important, that the very important complications, that is, of stroke or of heart failure, can be significantly diminished. So because what, good treatments are present. I was going to ask you, what treatment is there? What would, if, if we do discover that we have this, or if the doctor picks it up, or we pick it up taking our pulse, what can be done to regulate the heartbeat? Well, a lot can be done to regulate the heartbeat, either with medications or with other more um, involved procedures, which, although they're involved, are simple and highly effective and possibly are not really relevant to discuss them in detail at this particular stage, but medication can regularize it without actually curing it. That's one of the problems. Medications are not very good at curing atrial fibrillation. They're not bad at controlling the rate, but they're not good at curing it. Now, a controlled rate of atrial fibrillation is better than an uncontrolled rate, but the risk of stroke still occurs. Over the last 10 or so years, we've learned that by thinning the blood, we can seriously and significantly decrease the, the danger of stroke. A stroke, when it does occur, is not only a terrible, terrible thing to happen on an individual basis. It ruins people's lives, but it also ruins their financial resources. And uh, there's something really to be avoided. So the tactic of thinning the blood, and it can be effectively done, is um, most, most important. I have to emphasize at this stage that many years ago, uh, it was thought that by taking an aspirin, half an aspirin a day, yes. that you could effectively thin the blood. That's not so. It is not a, an effective form of anticoagulation, that is blood thinning. And indeed, there's evidence that's coming up now that the complications of aspirin are almost equal to the gains. There are new drugs which are available, and there are old drugs 
warfarin. I'm sure you've all yes. heard of it, mm. uh, which are available. And these are highly effective in preventing uh, the, complica- the complication of stroke. Well, I just want to make it quite clear to the listeners out there, please not to start panicking now and walking around, clutching your wrist, taking your pulse 24-7, because really that's not going to help you. But it is good to maybe just start understanding. Well, I'm not sure that you're right, well, because, because I don't think you're absolutely right. I think that people have to learn to take their pulse. Yes, and absolutely. once they take it and they understand it, they, they think to be able to control things. In fact, it will reassure them rather than make them nervous. Or maybe I'm talking from from my from personal. Um, what I probably am likely to do is run around taking my pulse all the time. But you know, just the the bottom line is what you're saying here, doctor, is that we need to learn how to do it. And if there is something wrong, there, there is something that can be done about it. You just need to go and speak to your doctor about it and be put onto the right medication if there is and a problem. And I think that you need a proper explanation from your doctor as to what it is. As to what it is, and you have to go back to your doctor if. It's changing. If it's different at the time that you're seeing the doctor to what you have noticed, you need to take that thing further because the consequences are profound. Now, what if people are wanting to start taking their own pulses now, what should you said it's average is about 70 beats a minute? Well, there's a range. There's a range. It can be too fast, like, um, over 100 beats a minute or something around those, or it can be too slow, under 50 beats a minute. They will learn what their own pulse is and what it is normally. And they'll also know when there's a departure from normal. And they'll know how to describe that departure from normal, all of which will lead to the ability to diagnose this extremely common and devastating condition and treatable condition. And this is another one. I, th- I go on about this quite a lot on the show, is, is that people need to start taking responsibility for their own health. And this is one way in which they can do that. Absolutely. And you say there is going to be a nationwide campaign teaching people. Yes, there's people. a group called the Arrhythmia Alliance, which is a subgroup of the English group called the Arrhythmia Alliance. And all sorts of ways uh, they will be um, announcing their abilities and where it will be uh, and, and their status and where they, where they will be teaching. In the press, there will be something on uh, a logo, a national logo, and there will be a lot on various um, national advertising um, media, such as TV. There will be a bit on TV and on radio. And you'll find out in your doctor's office and find out in the, in the pharmacy. There will be all sorts of information available. People should take advantage of it because it can save them a very terrible complication. And in a lot of cases, I'm sure it could also save your life. Certainly do that, Dr. Obel. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening and for enlightening us uh, as to what atrial fibrillation is all about and how we can actually start helping ourselves. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Dr. Israel Obel is a specialist cardiologist at Milk Park Hospital. And as he said, keep a lookout for the advertising campaigns for the Arrhythmia Alliance and start learning how to take your pulse and just keep a, a mental record or possibly write it down somewhere as to what it is and how it's going. And if there are any discrepancies or you're not happy about something, please do not leave it. Go and speak to your doctor. Health Matters with Karen Key. 
Well, now in its sixth year, the Home of Hope cares for children in community-based foster homes. Now, these children have not had the easiest start in life. Some of them have been abandoned or been victims of domestic violence, while others have been affected by HIV and AIDS, or they bear the effects of excessive drug and alcohol abuse during pregnancy. Now, there are some remarkable people involved in the Home of Hope, and I'm joined now by the founder, Eleanor Brooke. But before I say good evening to Eleanor, I just want to say thank you to listener Iona Skoltz for emailing me to tell me about the Home of Hope. Eleanor, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. Thanks a lot. So tell us where the idea for Home of Hope came from in the very beginning. Um, We were established in 2005 as a safe house for um, the local social worker. We didn't have a lot of resources in our community, and so that's we kind of started as a safe house and, and a resource for her and then developed into what we are today. So what are you today? Because you're basically community-based foster homes, but you don't well, just deal with children, as I mentioned, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or children with HIV, AIDS. There's a whole range of children. Well, we're basically um, a registered child protection organization that kind of provides, well, not kind of, we provide services for the safety and well-being of care of children in need of it um, with a very holistic approach through protecting, um, protection, education and support with an aim of breaking a cycle of abuse. Um, and in a, in a nutshell, we basically have looked at the children holistically and realized just to care for children in foster homes isn't going to get them where we need to get them. We have to look at them holistically. We have to look at what their needs are, which will include things like education, um, support to families so children could one day perhaps return back to their families, support other community members who are working with children that might not necessarily be in the um, social work system, the social system, but they are in need, they've been adopted. Um, and so we kind of put support out for families like that and redistribute excess that we have. So it's kind of um, a link of different things that we do. You did open the Amatemba um, School, it's a learning centre. Tell me a little bit about what you do there. It's an individualised learning centre. It falls under the, the section of our organisation that's where the education comes in. It's a centre where children that have FASD um, are being taught with, within their own individual learning needs, um, with looking at their learning barriers. That each child is um, evaluated by an educational psychologist and an IEP set up for that child. We then look at the child's learning barrier or try and, through therapeutic interventions, overcome the learning barrier so that they can actually take the curriculum and go further within their curriculum. Some of the most frightening statistics I found on your website, actually, Eleanor, um, well, we all know, I think most of us by now know that the Western Cape has the highest rate of fetal alcohol syndrome disorder in the world, which in itself is horrifying. But I was reading there that about 70,000 children are born every year in South Africa suffering from that condition. Um, That's correct. It's one one out of every eight children suffer from the condition in the Western Cape. Um, and then there's approximately 80% of those children are not being raised by their own birth parents. So you need to understand how big a problem it is that their own families aren't looking after them, people within the communities are looking after them, which makes it very, very challenging for people. What symptoms are associated with FASD? Because I'm sure a lot of people hear the, the term fetal alcohol syndrome, but they don't quite know what that entails. It's very difficult because um, we talk about FASD, which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, is actually under the umbrella Mm. of the FASD. Then um, those children are normally diagnosed, and they're easily diagnosed because they have features. 
They have facial features, low set ears. They, um, they've got bridges. There's a split between the eyes. There's, there's a lot of features that those children have, and those are normally diagnosed by a hospital or a medical practitioner. So those are diagnosed quite early. Those are diagnosed because you can see the feature of the okay. child. There's a syndrome. That's why they call it fetal alcohol syndrome. You can see that. So those children have a. They they actually have an advantage because they're diagnosed, and so they are going to be treated as. FAS children, but an FASD child is very difficult because you cannot see the, the syndrome. You don't see it. You don't, you don't know what the damage. The only thing that you know is that the parent, the mother, would have drank during pregnancy. And if you don't know how much you drank, you also wouldn't know what the damage is. And that's what makes FASD so dangerous and so difficult to deal with. So that then comes out later in the form of what? Behavioral issues, Behavioral learning issues. issues? Once they go to school, these children can't... Um, cope with in mainstream, um, they have learning disabilities, they have cognitive and behavioural disabilities, um, and it's a lifelong, it has lifelong implications. This is such a tragic thing because this is something that it does not need to happen. And a lot of it, I don't know whether it's lack of education on this issue, or that there's been so much education on this topic. What, why do you think we are still sitting with this problem today? I, to be honest, between you and I and and out there, you know, there's an acceptance of social social drinking, mm. and a lot of people don't actually, a lot of women don't know they're pregnant in the first couple of weeks of pregnancy, so they're drinking and um, partying without actually knowing it. So you have those children that, that are going to be affected by it with, with the lack of the knowledge of the parents, just because they don't know they're pregnant. So it's not a case of you have to have been drinking for the full nine months? No, 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 okay. not at all. And there is no scientific proof as to say exactly how much does does the harm. So there, there is no scientific proof. So that's why they say rather stay away from alcohol right through your pregnancy. And also if you're planning on falling pregnant, stop drinking now stop bef- drinking. before so you actually... You, don't, mm. you wouldn't know when you're actually pregnant. And then on the, in the Western Cape, of course, you had the old DOP system. Right, yes. And then, of course, with poverty it's playing a big role in it. Um, so the, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that actually um, play a role in this problem. Now you are doing something quite remarkable to try to raise awareness about FASD and also uh, to raise money for <clears throat> building an FASD school. And you're going to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, in September. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing, Eleanor? Yes, I'm. I'm laughing because I think you're amazing. But I mean, you laughing is it? Is it like? Are you thinking? Am I crazy? I got to be honest. Sitting here tonight, I'm. I'm very stiff. I had a rough day at the gym, so I'm feeling it and. So, yes, I'm laughing, thinking of myself <laughs> going to be climbing this mountain. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, we, we're doing it because, our children, firstly, um, we want to raise awareness of the challenges that children um, faced with FSD. You know, it, it, life for them is very, very challenging. Every day for them is like climbing a mountain, just having to think clearly, just having to make the decisions that you and I can do it naturally. Um, for these children, it's like climbing a mountain. I have to train for five months to go up Kili. They're born into it. They don't have a choice. They are born with all these challenges. You know? Their frontal lobes are damaged, so just a, a daily decision every day is very, very difficult for these children. So you, what you, it's all very um, symbolic what you're doing because you're hoping to peak on the 9th of September, which is International FASD Day. And what happens when you reach the peak? Because there's well, all sorts of other things. Okay. All over the world, that they ring a bell. There's a bell being rung all over the world um, at nine minutes past nine on the ninth day, ninth month, and that's to raise the awareness of FASD. And the focus and so, is on nine because nine months. Everything's around the nine months 
um, of the baby in the womb. So the whole, we also have a fares knot. There's a um, fares knot that we use. Um, it's a symbolic um, knot that me- that's made basically of a white cord, and it's tied in a reef knot, which symbolizes um, the, the circle, symbolizes the womb and the baby's head and the human brain um, and the world around it. And then, of course, the cord is the umbilical cord that joins us all together in caring. Um, and then the reef knot cannot really be broken. The more you kind of pull it, the tighter the bond becomes. Um, the fray ends of this um, knot um, represents a damaged nervous system, which can't be repaired. So that's the sad part about FASD. It's 100% preventable and 100% irreversible. The damage is, is done permanently. So on the 9th, it's, uh, we want to be on the mountain to ring that bell um, on the highest mountain in Africa, just as a symbol to, to what we believe in and um, against the FASD problem of our country. So are you looking for sponsorship, Eleanor? Yes. Um, I have my, my, my climb itself has been sponsored, but I have we eight other members on the team, and we're looking for sponsorship to help them to get their climb on the mountain. And then, of course, we're wanting to raise the money by one rand per, um, one rand per meter up the mountain. Okay, and this, as I mentioned, was to raise money to build the school for children with um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as well as raising awareness. So it's a two-pronged mission that you're on. Yes. Um, the idea we at present we have um, we've got this we've got a partnership with one of the local schools, the West Coast Christian School here in um, Table View, and they've given us two classrooms. So we have our children in their school. But ideally for us to grow and to be able to reach more children, we need our own school. So all funds that we are going to be raising is to build our own school and from what from that school try and model the same systems and curriculum into other communities so we could reach more children. So if people are wanting to get hold of you to find out what, about what you're doing and possibly to, if they, I'm sure you're always looking for assistance and all sorts of things, if they want to do that, on your website, Eleanor, homeofhope.co.za? Yes, www.homeofhope.co.za. Okay, and I will give out the phone number as well if they'd like to give you a call and if they'd like to sponsor one of the other climbers or if they, if you're needing, I'm sure you need lots of things um, at the at the foster home. So I'm sure if people are wanting to get involved in whatever way they can, um, they can just give you a ring or have a look on the website or the contact details are there. Everything's there. That would be fantastic. Well, Eleanor, I wish you all success. I'm glad it's not me climbing the mountain. I wish you all success. I'm sure you will reach the peak on the 9th of September at and ring the bell at nine minutes past nine, and we'll be thinking of you then. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Karen, and have a great evening. Thank you, and thank you for all the work that you do in the community. It's very much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Eleanor Brooke is the founder of the Home of Hope, and if you'd like to find out more about the amazing work they're doing there, take a look at their website. It's www.homeofhope.co.za, or you can call them on 021-556-3573, 021-556-3573. And if, like listener, I own a sculpt, you have something you think would be of interest for the show, please drop me a mail on healthmatters at safm.co.za or post something on the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Joining me on the show this evening is Kanyisa Belfour, and she's the Group Corporate Social Investment Manager for Engine. And we're going to be talking about the Engine Driver Wellness Campaign. It's in its third year, and it's an annual initiative by Engine aimed at educating long-distance truck drivers about the importance of maintaining a healthy lifestyle whilst on the road. Kanyisa, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen, and good evening and to you and your listeners. 
this is one of those very almost essential things that you are doing because it's not only the truck driver's health that you are maintaining but it's the rest of us driving on the road because if these drivers aren't well there could be dire consequences for all of us absolutely i mean uh, just to 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 say that when we started this uh, initiative we really had not kind of formalized we were invited by fleetwatch to join them uh, doing a very interesting survey uh, where they also partnered with uh, vets university we had students that were studying optometry and of the number of people that we tested I'm not sure about the exact numbers now, but what was startling for us of drivers that were tested during that campaign at six truck stops of engine could not see. Could not see. And there was a strong correlation between high blood pressure and mm. diabetes. So that for us then uh, motivated us to to move and and into formalizing some form of a relationship with an organization that is doing this work and that's when the partnership with Corridor Empowerment started because they have their own program that they run throughout the year and and we partnered with them so that we can target those truck stops and and some of the engine sites so that we can run driver wellness days. So what exactly happens at the engine truck stops? I mean do you have are there permanent clinics there? What actually happens there? At the moment, Engine has 13 truck stops, and seven of those have got uh, health clinics that are, uh, that are run by corridor empowerment projects, and they are staffed by registered nurses, and they run for the whole day. But specifically, because drivers arrive in the afternoons, the peak time is between 5 and, and midnight. But during the day, those clinics are, are, are open to the general public uh, where they are, and then they can pop in for their you know, a quick check on your blood pressure and on your diabetes, for example, and HIV testing. Because and these are all free services? This is a free service that uh, is provided there at the truck stops. So on wellness days, we screen truck drivers and drivers that come along. I would emphasize drivers because at some of the sites, like for example, the one stop here in Swatland in the Western Cape, it is a big engine site. Any driver who comes, drivers get uh, screened for diabetes and we check their blood pressure. We do the cholesterol checking. And lately we have introduced, um, as part of the campaign by the national government, that there are practitioners that speak about male circumcision. Obviously we don't do it on the site, but it's really promoting it to say it is very key. And this is also in line when people speak about HIV and about ordinary hygiene. And, um, and also we have people from the Department of Health in their respective provinces that come to speak about cancer. They come to speak about prostate cancer in particular because most of the drivers are, are male. male. And so those, that's really what we do. And we provide a referral service from there. And HIV testing, uh, that it would include uh, the voluntary counseling before. Obviously, we everything is done according to the protocols that we need to follow from the Department of Health. And those people, we, 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 um, we refer them to the relevant institutions where they have to go and mostly to their health clinic and some of them have got their own private doctors and obviously those would get a referral letter from the health practitioners at those. And what actually struck us last year, of the 841 drivers that we, we screened, 63 of those tested positive for HIV. It may not look a big number, but it takes a great deal of courage for people. And I think for us, we're realizing that 
people are starting to become more comfortable with coming forward for HIV testing. And, and, and we refer those people. And obviously everything is done absolutely with the strictest confidentiality and they don't even have to register who they are. We, we just put numbers. Some of them don't mind to say, look, I would like to come here for my testing. So that's what happens on a wellness day. So you have the permanent clinics, but then for those sites that don't yes. have the permanent clinics, you go around there. Is it once a year that you would go and do the wellness day? Yes, Okay. It will be once a year we have the Wellness Day. Corridor Empowerment have got mobile clinics. And, and on those days and all those sites, actually all sites, we always have an additional or two additional mobile vans and they bring additional stuff so that we can do it much quicker. And in some areas, we also have some little fire around the fire conversations that we have. And you know how our male male you know, counterparts are not comfortable talking about health no. matters. We probably are women, the ones that are more... We are. Yes. Uh, so we always find ways that would uh, provide that absolutely confidentiality and also allowing people to come forward in a in a more it's private safe and safe, safe environment mm. with their other colleagues and counterparts. And obviously the nurses that are at those sites on those particular wellness days are always available for those private conversations. And consultations are done in private, in the mobile vans, and then people go one by one. It doesn't matter what you want to do while others are waiting outside and receiving uh, health education and awareness on a particular matter. So people don't just sit around. And then, and obviously we hoi some incentives um, to, to the people that come around. And now in your second year, which was, was 2012, you, I mean, 841 yes. drivers up from the previous year, which was 400 yeah. and something. So you literally doubled the number in we one did. year. We did. So obviously the word is getting out and it's, it's something that people seem comfortable with. Are drivers taking to this quite well? Do you have any problems with people when, when it comes to this sort of thing? No, no, we, we actually don't. I, I think the, the growth is as a result. I think the, the awareness is getting and the word is getting out. They also the word of mouth from driver to driver. There's also the more promoting of this on ourselves. We promote it at the toll gates. We have pamphlets. We also promote it at the truck stops themselves in advance where we have posters where they can see. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think also what is also quite interesting is that I I remember when we started, we we were challenged by SWEAT, Sex Workers um, Organization, and, and, and we do allow them. I mean, bottom line is that whether we like it or not, there are things you can't separate. And, and, and those people then, they do go to the clinic during the day uh, for their supplies for, um, for the next day. So as they much can also as get medication and things They from do them? get it from the clinic. Uh, but as much as we don't allow them, I think, in the, in the sites, because I think the owners of the fleet, they want their drivers to stop there and sleep. And, uh, but, I mean, we're dealing with adults here, and they always find their own ways. But I think what is important is that we allow access, or especially on the existing sites, uh, where we have uh, clinics where the infrastructure is for them to come and collect uh, their supplies that they need during the day. You mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation about the re research that was done and the number of drivers who were found with vision problems, not yes. being able to see. 
that's what I'm really sitting in the back of my head thinking, are you testing them when they come into the clinic? Is there somehow a way of testing those drivers that well, are coming in? Well, at the moment, we, we, we have not included the the students that came to do the, the vision uh, testing. But it's certainly something that we are exploring, especially for next year, uh, because it does cost quite a bit. But it's a matter of collaborating with an, an existing institution to provide students with workplace experience. So it is something that we're exploring. It was quite frightening for us and I think it was really the motivation. So we are exploring that and uh, via some of the institutions and then I'm sure I'll come back and 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 share. But um, you know, on the other hand, Kanisa, you know, I talk about, about are you testing their vision? Surely that should be up to the companies who are employing yeah, these drivers that exactly. before they put them in one of their trucks these guys are tested and they are, I mean, they should be, it shouldn't be up to an outside party. I mean, exactly. I thank you guys very much for the work that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, all very grateful. Yeah. But the companies that are putting these men out on the road, they should be taking partly some of that responsibility to make sure that the guys in their trucks are healthy and well enough to drive. Exactly. And, and I think that's what is included in our own engine um, driver program. You know, we're very serious about that. I mean, our truck drivers get tested uh, almost every quarter. I mean, we test them almost every day for substance um, mm. as well. I mean, we have a serious substance abuse policy for, for drinking. So it is absolutely the responsibilities of companies that have people that are out on the road. I mean, you think you about know. someone like Engine. I mean, you're taking responsibility. You are checking your driver. Drivers, hmm. But they're driving flammable loads. If those yeah. things go, we're all going to ball, burn up in a ball of fire. I mean, it's, but it's not just that. They're, they're food companies, they're supermarket trucks. There's exactly. lots of trucks on the road. I mean, yes. we all know we go off over a, a, a road with a hill and we're all cursing because we're stuck behind a huge truck. Yes. Is that driver actually well? Can he see hmm. where he's going? Yes. None of us know this. It's true. And it's also, worrying. yeah, when, when also you're behind it, you're sort of wondering, I'm becoming so conscious now whether the driver in front of me can see or whether he's taken his um, blood pressure medication, oh, maybe he's dizzy. Me and now. sometimes I worry about, mm, I wonder what his sugar level is oh, today. No, don't go there. So, so th th that is the intention to make sure that we make this accessible so that people can have themselves checked. Well, it's yeah, not it's, just yeah. for their benefit, but it's also for the benefit of everyone else Absolutely. on the road. Absolutely. All and if there are any company users. owners listening to this and you have a fleet of trucks and drivers, please just check your drivers. Yeah. I'm sure it's, it it will cost you a lot less in the long run yeah. to have a healthy driver on the road than having something crashing off somewhere. And uh, besides making sure your vehicle is roadworthy, make sure your driver is roadworthy as well. Exactly. That, that, that is absolutely the, the most critical thing. And I think there's a tendency now that, I mean, if you, if you look at um, the focus on, on the long-distance bus drivers, oh, I gosh, mean, buses. Oh, that's awful. Um, I haven't heard a call for long-distance trucks uh, where they are being checked and where they are taken off the road. I don't know if there's something like that. And yet you see, you know, trucks lying on the side of the road all the time. And I think sometimes we get quite reactive because the reaction now is on buses. Well, we because should be proactive rather than reactive. Exactly. I mean, these truck drivers and, and in, in general, I mean, these are the, this is the engine of the economy. If we want to continue to have the engine moving and going, we need to make sure that the people that operate it are in perfect health themselves, so as the trucks on the road. What's planned for next year? Because every year you seem to get bigger and bigger and more and more. <laughs> <laughs> In your in within this project, what what have you got? On the, you're still busy with this year. I mean, you people will see this happen.
happening now. You, yeah. And you, you're, you're going around the country all over the place. Exactly. I mean, we started in, in on the 2nd of March mm. in, in Kimberley. We've already done three sites. Already we've, we've already screened more than 200 drivers. And the intention for next year is really just to keep making it more accessible to people to make, it's more about raising the awareness, both to the people that are driving uh, trucks themselves and also to companies and the fleet owners of these people that are on the road. And I know that there is a renewed focus, I think, internally that we can look at how do we bring in the other method of screening. I mean, obviously, the conversations with the Department of Health in the respective areas is to say, can we bring in eye testing? Because other things that we talk about, uh, we provide an opportunity for the Department of Health in the respective provinces to come on board. The whole thing around um, male circumcision is an inclusion this year. And prostate cancer started last year. And you God knows what, next year we might have another addition in addition to checking for the eyesight. So we, we also are inviting partners who, who really see the importance of what we do. Because it's not just about the health of drivers, it's more from our side driven by our focus on safety. Mm. Because one of our focuses, I think, as a business in general is safety. So is our CSI program to make sure that, you know, safety is, is a priority at all our touch points and everywhere we are. Uh, we talk safety, safety uh, all the time. Well, thank you for what you're doing for the rest of us on the road out there. We're very yeah. grateful because yeah. hopefully some, most of those drivers now will be checked and will be well. And yes. as I said, will be roadworthy as hopefully as are their trucks. I mentioned that you're going all over the country. Do you want to just tell us quickly where are you going to be? Well, we're going to Springfontaine. Uh, Beaufort West will be there. We've already been, actually, sorry. And uh, we're going to Cockstad now on the uh, 17th of, of April. Marion Hill will be there on the 7th of May. Uh, in Port Elizabeth will be there in October on the 7th. Komati Port in June. Market Gateway, we're coming there. That is the biggest engine site and it's close to a men's hostel. Last year it was so busy. People from the hostels around coming. We are there on the 18th of October. Grand Scope on the 27th of um, September. Belfast, we have been just on the 22nd of May. We are going to be in Epping Depot uh, on the 16th of September, Swatland one stop on the 4th of October and Winelands one stop in the Western Cape on the 6th of October. So we'll keep promoting this because we are actually advertising at the truck stops themselves, but also in the media. We, we talk about them. So just keep an eye out and you can yes. find out where they're going to be yes. next. Yes, yes. Kanisa, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening and good luck with the project and we look forward to it growing every year. It seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you to you, Karen. And uh, to the drivers there, just keep safe on the road. Absolutely. Kanisa Belfour is Group Corporate Social Investment Manager for NGEN. And if you'd like to find out more about NGEN Driver Wellness Campaign, uh, Kanisa mentioned that they're in association with the Corridor Empowerment Project. So have a look for them on the internet and you'll be able to find out lots more information. And keep an eye on the local press and at the truck stops themselves. And you'll find out all about what's happening, the dates they're going to be there and what is on offer. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thank you for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. And we'll be going sailing through the Greek Isles. We'll be finding out about the Omgeni steam train. It's a listener's um, contribution. She emailed me. It's the My Town Project. We'll be going off to visit the Elgin Wine Valley and going off to enjoy the Olive Festival in Prince Albert. And remember, it's property law on Monday if you listen to the Law Report with Marlon Chevalier. So join me for that. But if you need 
any information about anything you've heard this evening on the show, you've missed an address or a contact detail, you can have a look at the Facebook page. It's Health Matters on SAFM. You can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za. And there's also a link on the Facebook page if you'd like to download a podcast of the show.